You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is the story behind the story. I'm Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Bay Area author Charlie Jane Anders. She's the author of the 2016 novel All the Birds in the Sky, which won the 2017 Nebula Award for Best Novel, the Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel, and the Crawford Award. It was also a finalist for the 2017 Hugo for Best Novel. As if that weren't enough, she's also the founding editor of the sci-fi website io9, organizer of the Writers with Drinks reading series in San Francisco, and the recipient of the 2005 Lambda Literary Award, the 2009 Emperor Norton Award, and the 2012 Hugo Award for her other fiction. Her latest novel, The City in the Middle of the Night, comes out this February, and it's the topic of our conversation today. Charlie Jane Anders, welcome to the story behind the story. Yay, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. For readers whose first introduction to your work was All the Birds in the Sky, I think it would be easy to believe that you were birthed like Athena, fully formed with a clear and distinctive writing style and voice. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, I mean, we know that's not the way it works. It takes time to develop a voice. So how did you develop your voice as a writer? And when did you start to feel that you'd come into your own? I mean, it took a long time. I, I don't feel like I've reached the end of that process, to be honest. I feel like I'm still developing my voice as a writer a lot. It was, you know, a period of many years of kind of writing tons and tons of fiction, which mostly got rejected or published in really small venues. And occasionally I would break into a larger venue and then go right back to being rejected and only published in smaller venues. It was like it was a long period of kind of scratching at the door, uh, trying to get in. And meanwhile, just kind of experimenting a lot with different styles and different genres, actually, and different types of writing, trying to find what worked for me. And a lot of what worked for me was kind of trying to take what I would consider my main strengths as a writer, which are, you know, humor and silliness and absurdity and kind of weird, offbeat ideas and kind of quirky, strange stuff, trying to take those strengths and develop other stuff to go with them, like emotion and character and like three-dimensional characters, kind of a sense of story that had like a, a core to it that had like a center to it that was like, you know, an emotional thing. And that was something that I spent years and years and years struggling with. And I still struggle with it. And what you see in my latest book, the one that comes out in February, uh, The City in the Middle of the Night, is that I've kind of started to deliberately dial the humor way back and the quirkiness and the kind of silliness way back in order to really focus on developing the characters and the emotion and the storytelling and the kind of nuts and bolts stuff that having a lot of like wacky humor can sometimes let you skate past not doing. And so this book kind of represents me making another attempt to develop my writing style in a different way and kind of challenge myself in a different way. And I think that that's the story of being a writer is that you keep challenging yourself, you keep pushing your limits and trying to do things that you haven't done before. You know, if you're lucky, it works out. But either way, you have to keep trying new things and and pushing yourself or you kind of start to burn out or get bored with your own work or atrophy or just you can't kind of just you can't be like, okay, I've developed my voice and now I'm done. That's that's not how it works. How long have you been writing fiction? Oh, wow. I mean, definitely, I would say, you know, almost 20 years now. You know, my earliest uh, fiction publications were, I think, around 2000, 2001. And I've been I've been working at it for a long time. And, you know, it's been it's been a goal of mine. It's been something that I've been kind of that I 
decided was my career for a long time before I was making any money at it. Like it was one of those things where I kept saying that writing fiction was my real career or my real job. And I just, everything else was my day job. But literally I was making, I think that the amount of money I was spending on my fiction writing in terms of just envelopes and postage and computer stuff and whatever, I was actually making a loss on it for a long time. What's a typical day look like for you? I mean, now that I'm no longer working at io9 and I don't have a day job anymore, a typical day is often just structured around trying to get as much writing done as I can in a day. And it really depends. Like sometimes there's other stuff going on. I have to do promotional appearances or have meetings or talk to people or whatever. But, you know, a day where I don't have anything else going on, I, you know, somewhere in there, I take a really long walk. I walk up like really steep hills that kind of helps to get the writing brain going for some reason. I will spend some time sitting in a cafe. I also will work on my fiction at home. Sometimes I'll work on one writing project at home and then go sit in a cafe and work on a different writing project and then go home again. Um, It really varies, but there's a lot of walking and sitting and I exercise in various other ways. There's a lot of exercise. Mostly it's just a lot of like sitting and concentrating and trying to like figure out stuff. And I'll have some days where I will try to write like a few thousand words that are mostly garbage to try to figure out where the story is going or what I'm trying to do. And often I produce a lot of words and then it's not actually that those words are going to be in the book or the story. It's just that I'm, they help me to clarify stuff. How do you avoid getting dispirited when, when you've written like a, a pretty large chunk of text that you know won't make it in? I mean, there's no way to avoid getting dispirited. It just, it, it's, it's a part of the process. And um, I definitely have many, many days where I feel like either I didn't accomplish anything in my writing, or I actually went backwards. I backslid. I kind of threw away stuff that I had already come up with, but I didn't come up with anything new. Or, you know, I just spent an entire day kind of staring into space and didn't get anything real done. Or I just had so many other things going on that the writing didn't really happen. And days where I feel like I didn't accomplish anything or where I wrote a bunch of stuff, but it was all garbage. It's hard not to get a little bit discouraged. I think that part of what fuels the writing process and keeps you working at it day after day is this kind of drive to accomplish something or to um, get somewhere or to produce, you know, something that you're going to be happy with. And the flip side of that is that when you don't produce or when you produce stuff that's kind of not great or when you're just struggling, um, you're going to get dispirited. You're going to be struggling. And just kind of accepting that that's part of the process, I guess, is the best thing you can do. I don't think there's any way to avoid it, to, to avoid those days where you just feel like it's not working and it's all garbage and maybe I'll never write anything good ever again. And, you know, I actually interviewed George R. R. Martin and he talked about that and how he has days where he's just like, God, I've just lost it. Like, I can't write. My writing is garbage. I'm just writing down stuff that's total crap and I can't, you know, my brain's not working. And it's just, it's really hard. It's like everybody has days like that and you're going to beat yourself up, but you just have to kind of remember that these things happen and that it's probably not the end of the road if you have like a couple of bad days. (laughs) All right. So on a happier subject, what is it (laughs) about writing fiction that appeals to you and what draws you to science fiction and fantasy in particular? What I love about writing fiction is just actually to some extent, the same thing that I love about reading fiction, which is getting lost in a story 
getting kind of sucked in and excited by like what's going to happen next and really getting this connection to these fictional characters who you know start to feel like real people and start to have like their own inner inner life hopefully and start to like and you know i like when i read a book i like to be surprised by something that's like oh wow that's i didn't think that was what was going to happen but that actually makes sense and it's kind of awesome i also when i'm writing like to be surprised i like to be surprised by stuff that kind of comes to me in the writing process or that you know i hit on somehow i'm like oh okay what if this happened oh that's kind of interesting or if the characters like randomly through me trying to get into their heads and imagine what they're thinking or what they actually would be wanting to do in this situation, they take a left turn that turns isn't what I thought was going to happen next, but actually leads to something really interesting. I like to be surprised. I like to be kind of challenged. I like part of what I like about fiction is that you can explore big ideas and big questions without it being just an essay or whatever. And you can have people wrestling with all the questions that we wrestle with in real life but you can kind of draw the margins differently if that makes any sense like part of what is great about fiction is that you can deal with a lot of real life stuff but you get to define your terms a little bit more and you get to say this is where the story starts and this is where the story ends and these are the parts of the situation that we're going to include in the story because you can't include every single part of someone's life or every single possible factor that could be a part of the story. And so you get to kind of define what's, you know, what the boundaries are of the story a little bit more. And that lets you kind of get a little bit more clarity sometimes on things that are hard to get clarity on in real life. Um, But then why I like writing science fiction and fantasy in particular is really in a lot of ways has to do with the part about like getting to ask big questions and getting to like struggle with the stuff that we struggle with in real life, but maybe get somewhere with it because in science fiction and fantasy you can have like these big thought experiments. What if half the world's population suddenly disappeared or I don't know something and um, you can follow them to their logical conclusion and they kind of lead you to being able to ask and, you know, maybe poke at and find possible answers to some of these big questions that are big questions in real life. It lets you kind of cope with, all of the stuff that we cope with in real life about like the world changing really quickly, things that used to make sense don't make sense anymore. Um, Everything is confusing and weird and messed up and we don't understand the world the way we used to. And that kind of sense of dislocation and strangeness and weirdness and unreality is something that science fiction is really uniquely uh, equipped to deal with. And so I think that that's a good thing. Which authors do you think do that especially well? People always mention Philip K. Dick, who does the kind of strangeness and dislocation and edge, the ragged edge of reality. He does that really well. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, obviously. I've been reading a lot of Le Guin lately, and she's really good at kind of finding the humanity in strange situations. And also something that I think we need more of in our weird futures and like imaginary worlds She's good at like situating people inside community and societies Hmm. that feel fleshed out and real and kind of not, it's not just an individual against a painted backdrop or an individual against society. It's an individual in the midst of society and society is part of what informs the, the story always. And these kind of social expectations and these like subtle um, mythologies and 
these things bubbling under the surface in her work are part of what make it really interesting in that way. I always uh, bring up Doris Lessing, who is somebody that I'm obsessed with. Um, her fiction has a lot of like weirdness and change and, you know, literal dislocation. Like she, she had to, you know, she uh, left Africa. She left, I guess, the former Rhodesia, like Zimbabwe, when she was young and moved to England and has this sort of post-colonial perspective in her fiction a lot of the time. But she also is really good at depicting people whose ideals are slowly being kind of torn apart by reality and people who really, really believe in a cause or a principle or an idea and slowly reality is kind of, you know, tearing that away from them. And she's, I don't know, I think that her characters are really interesting and she captures something about confronting reality that I think is really interesting. And her stuff is very science fictional, at least some of the time. Even her realistic fiction feels in some way like it, you know, it has a lot of the toolkit of science fiction in there, which I think is really interesting. This is Story Behind the Story on KSQD 90.7 FM. Stay tuned for more of my conversation with San Francisco author Charlie Jane Anders after a short break. Ladies and gentlemen, we've landed safely in Santa Cruz, where the temperature outside is a balmy 70 degrees. We hope you've enjoyed your flight on K-Squid Airwaves. We know you have many other choices and appreciate your choosing K-Squid. 90.7 FM, your ink spot on the dial. Please watch the overhead bins when you disembark and keep on listening to K-Squid Community Radio for Santa Cruz and beyond. And have a nice trip. You're listening to Story Behind the Story on KSQD 90.7 FM with me, Clara Shirley Appel. My guest today is Charlie Jane Anders, author of the award-winning 2016 novel All the Birds in the Sky and a slew of novellas, short stories, and nonfiction pieces that she's published over the past few decades. We're talking about her new novel, The City in the Middle of the Night, which was published earlier this year. So you mentioned world building, and one of the things that I think really stands out about your work is the richness of the worlds that are constructed in it. And in January, which is the, the planet where all the action happens in the city of the middle of the night, it's no exception. It's a very rich world. How do you approach that process of world building, and how do you avoid like the classic sci-fi info dump? What I always say about world building is that you can't. it's the stuff that you can't just walk through. Like If there's a wall in real life, you can't just walk through it. You have to go around it. That's part of what world building does in a, in a good story is that it sets up some of the obstacles that the characters can't just ignore, that they have to deal with as part of the challenges that they're facing. I think that good world building has a sense of history and weight to it. And it's not just like this, all this stuff got here yesterday. It's more like there's been like layers of history and layers of stuff that's happened over generations and over centuries that's all still kind of hanging around. And so the more layers of the past there are in the world, the more the world feels real and lived in. And I think that's what we always want. You know, when I did All the Birds in the Sky, I kind of cheated because the final two thirds of the book mostly take place in San Francisco, which is a place that I live in and have lived in for a long time. And so it was like, okay, there's all these little details that I know from living here and I can just call upon that. And you can't do that, unfortunately, with a fictional place. You have to just really, really dig deep and invent a bunch of stuff that has that level of you can touch it, you can taste it, you can smell it, you can feel it. And it's it's tricky. It's really hard. So in terms of process when you're actually writing, um, is this like, do you have the world fully fleshed out in your head and you're putting it down as you are writing everything else? Or is it more like 
there are seeds that you realize you're going to have to plant and they, they end up in later drafts. It's always different. Like every process is different. And in the case of the city in the middle of the night, um, I spent like, I don't know, a year and a half writing longhand in, in blank journals. And that's what I did with All the Words in the Sky and some of my previous novels too. But with this one, I ended up not really being able to use most of what's in those journals. It was kind of frustrating. I kept kind of trying a bunch of different approaches. But what did happen over the course of that time of just like putting down stuff and putting down stuff and putting down stuff and like trying different approaches to the story was that I came up with a bunch of stuff for the world. And so by the time I figured out an approach to the story that worked, I had already written down hundreds of pages of details about the world that ended up being useful. But pretty much always, no matter what, you're going to have to go back and add more of that stuff in as you revise. I don't like to spend a lot of time coming up with stuff that ends up not really being used in the story if I can avoid it. I like to come up with locations that we're going to spend a lot of time in. Like I think of it almost like, you know, if you watch a classic sitcom, there are like maybe three or four sets where the characters hang out a lot. Hmm. Like, for example, um, my parents were watching a lot of Frasier recently, so I sort of watched <laughs> it with them. And in Frasier, you know, there's Frasier's apartment, there's the radio station where he works, there's the cafe where him and Niles hang out. Uh-huh. Those are the three kind of big sets that they have that are like permanent sets. Most TV shows have that. They have like a few sets that you just see a lot of, that a lot of work has gone into them because they're the main places where the characters spend a lot of time. And I think that a good novel often has that too, to the extent that the places where the characters spend the most time are places that we really get to kind of feel we know those places well, and we want to hang out at them. When you think about your favorite novel, often there is like a place where the characters hang out a lot. That's like, oh, I want to hang out there. And there's like a place where they kind of do the tasks that they need to do, or there's like there's certain locations and I feel like those places need to be really fleshed out and you kind of know what they are as you're writing. And then everything else, like walking around out on the street, you just have to have a sense of what it's like walking around kind of. So I try to think of it as almost building sets in my head. Like there are certain sets that I need to build and I figure out what those are. And then I really try to make those sets as like detailed and sturdy as I can. You mentioned that you work in journals um, or that you worked in journals for this book and you worked in journals for all the birds in the sky. How does that affect your writing? The advantage of uh, writing longhand is, first of all, it's harder to go back and revise as you're writing. It's harder to, to, to second guess what you already put down. There's no like little icon that pops up in the top <laughs> corner of the blank notebook that says you've got a new piece of email or someone's tweeted about you or, you know, whatever, someone's texting you. Um, it's harder to get distracted, hopefully. And also, I just find I can be a little bit more stream of consciousness. I can be a little bit more just kind of writing very raw stuff that, you know, it feels almost like keeping a journal in the sense that I'm just writing about like stuff that I'm feeling or that the characters are feeling. It just kind of has a little bit more immediacy in a weird way. I think now's a good time for us to to turn to the the novel under question, The City in the Middle of the Night. Before we get too far into that, could you describe it for our listeners? Yeah, so basically the city in the middle of the night takes place on a planet that is tidally locked, which means that there's a permanent day side and there's a permanent night side. And um, in my novel, at least, the day side is really, really hot and the night side is super cold. And people basically live on this like thin strip of twilight in between the day side and the night side. 
And I was just really attracted and fascinated by that idea of living between these two extremes of really hot and really cold. I always love stories of people caught between extremes or in the middle of dichotomies or whatever. That's a thing that I keep returning to. And so there are basically these characters are living in this city that is on the edge of the night. And this one character, Sophie, her best friend, Bianca, kind of gets her involved with these revolutionaries and they kind of get into some trouble. Bianca does something a little bit, you know, reckless. And Sophie decides to take the blame for Bianca, which leads to Sophie getting banished into the night, basically sent into the frozen wasteland in permanent darkness where she's basically going to die. But instead of dying, she actually uh, learns how to communicate with the creatures that live there in the night and kind of forms a bond with them. And then when she comes back to the twilight area where the humans live, you know, she's changed and she has a different perspective and she kind of wants to save her friend Bianca, but she also is trying to just figure out what it means and like how to help these creatures that live in the night because they want her help. Where did the idea for this book come from and how did it change shape as you like took on the task of actually writing it? The idea came from reading about uh, Tyler Lock Planets. I was working on io9, which had a lot of science in, in mixed in with the science fiction. So we had a bunch of articles about Tyler Lock Planets that I helped to edit in some cases. And I just was reading about it a lot and talking to people about it a lot, talking to science nerds about it. In real life, the majority of the planets, don't quote me on this, I think <laughs> the majority of the planets in the habitable zone of their stars are tidally locked. And it's partly because I think three quarters of the stars in our galaxy are red dwarfs. And in order to be close enough to a red dwarf to have uh, enough heat to be in the habitable zone, you have to be tidally locked because of the gravity, because you're so close that you get pulled in to, you know, a tidally locked situation. So basically, if we were to colonize another planet outside our solar system, there is a high probability that it might be tidally locked. So that could actually be our future. I got fascinated with that and just started trying to imagine what that would be like, what it would be like to learn to communicate with the creatures that live in the darkness. That was kind of where it started for me. And then the more I thought about it, the more I got fascinated by the fact that on a tidally locked planet, you wouldn't have the same awareness of the passage of time Hmm. because the sun doesn't rise, the sun doesn't set, the sky basically never changes. Like there probably wouldn't be seasons the sky might just never change. It might just be always the same. And so when do you sleep? When do you know to work? When do you eat? You know, without the natural circadian rhythm that we have on Earth. And so I came up with this idea that some of the people living on the planet try really, really hard to maintain the circadian rhythms that humans had on Earth by using curfews and like enclosing themselves in total darkness half of the time and all these other things that they do. And that leads to a really conformist society But then people living in this other city um, decide to just do whatever they feel like whenever they feel like and kind of live in harmony with the planet, which means just not really having any sense of the passage of time. And that kind of theme of like the passage of time and how do you kind of know that time is passing other than that, you know, people are slowly getting older and like certain biological processes will continue probably on a schedule. How do you how do you deal with not knowing the passage of time just by like looking up at the sky? And that sort of led me to thinking about how we think about the past and how we think about the distant past versus the recent past. And it kind of gets back to what I was saying before about world building, because a lot of what makes world building work is the awareness of history and the past and stuff that's happened before you came along. 
that became a big part of the book is thinking about the, the passage of time and relating it to kind of things that light does in different ways and like the kind of ways that lights at light acts and how how light you know that never changes its position how that might seem to people it's sort of interesting that you were mentioning extremes when you were talking about the tidally locked planet because that's what you described in terms of the way the two cities deal with time is also sort of two extremes i love dichotomies i mean like you know all the birds in the sky is about that kind of like dichotomy between two opposites or two extremes as well, um, magic and science. Hmm. I think that's the thing that I'm just always interested in. I like to have these kinds of oppositions or dichotomies or whatever, and then kind of play around with them. So I want to talk to you now about metaphor, because there are a lot of different sort of metaphorical, well, literal layers of metaphors in the city in the middle of the night. What do you see as the sort of central metaphors of the novel? And how do you approach metaphor when you're writing? Wow. I mean, obviously, in science fiction and fantasy, you have things that are kind of metaphorical, but they're actually real in the story. And you have to be careful with that because, for example, you know, colonizing another planet inevitably brings up issues of like real life colonialism here on Earth. And there's no way to avoid that because it's the same process. It's just on a, on a different planet instead of a different you know, landmass or a different country. In some ways, colonization of another planet is a metaphor for colonialism on Earth, but it's also real. It's also real in the story. And people get understandably annoyed when you try to push those metaphors too far in terms of like using them to comment on real life stuff in a kind of heavy handed way. For example, not to pick on original Star Trek, but the way that original <laughs> Star Trek would sometimes have these metaphors for racism or the Vietnam War or whatever. Like they had that one episode where there's the people who are white on one side and black on the other and the other people yeah. who are black on one side and the white on the other. And like, it's a metaphor for racism, but it gets really heavy handed and really kind of, it feels like the, the you're lecturing the audience a little bit. And so um, it's a little bit sl sledgehammery. And so you don't want that. But at the same time, these things are kind of obviously related. They do relate back to real life stuff and they are kind of, inevitably connected to the real life stuff. You just have to kind of think about, A, make sure that it's real and it's on its own terms and it's not just a metaphor. And B, you know, try to be kind of sensitive and nuanced about it and not hit people over the head. And that was something I worried about a lot in this book in general. But also I think that I like metaphors that are meaningful to the characters. Like I think that kind of comes back to the thing of like, if things are real to the characters, then that feels meaningful to me. If the characters are consciously kind of creating metaphors that are meaningful to them, mm. that is better than me creating a metaphor that I'm going to impose from the outside. That makes any sense. This is Story Behind the Story on KSQD 90.7 FM. Stay tuned for more of my conversation with San Francisco author Charlie Jane Anders after a short break. You want to hear fascinating family stories? You want to learn how to research your family experience? This is Dan Speltz welcoming you to listen each month to the Family Sparks Chispas Familiares Family History Hour on KSQD 90.7 FM Community Radio, the best in family radio. This is the story behind the story for KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. 
I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and I'm talking today to author Charlie Jane Anders, whose new novel, The City in the Middle of the Night, has led many critics to compare her to the queen of science fiction herself, Ursula K. Le Guin. You were mentioning Le Guin earlier, and I think what you're saying about metaphor sounds very much like what, like how metaphor operates in a lot of her novels. And uh, this book has garnered more than a few comparisons to Le Guin. I know. It's a little intimidating. I mean, <laughs> I was I was definitely thinking about Le Guin when I was working on it. And it was definitely, she was still alive until after I, I had already pretty much finished it when, when she passed away. And I was very conscious of the debt that I owe in all of my writing, but especially this book to Le Guin and to Octavia Butler hmm. and to just a ton of other amazing writers. This book definitely owes a huge debt to Le Guin. Everybody always says steal from the best. And I think that <laughs> there's nobody better that you could steal from, really. Yeah, I mean, you'll have to pry my copy of The Dispossessed out of my cold, dead fingers. <laughs> so. Same, same. I love that. <laughs> that said, though, I, I can't imagine Le Guin writing this book. And part of that is that so much of her writing and so much of what makes her effective and, and so much of the way that she brings metaphor into her books involves a certain distance from character's emotional state in a way that like you're so close to, especially Sophie in this book. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, yeah, I mean, I hope that this doesn't just come across as like a cover version of Le Guin. That would be sad. I, I, I don't think it does. I don't think it's, no. I think it's, hopefully it borrows from Le Guin, but also has its own thing going on. Uh, yeah. I was just literally reading a thing the other day where Gary Wolf, who's this science fiction sort of critic, who's brilliant and awesome was saying that people who invite comparison to Le Guin always end up losing out, which I think is fair. You're not going to, you can never be, like I could never be as as brilliant as Le Guin. And like, this is a little bit of a humble brag, but I was actually uh, asked to write an afterword to a new edition of The Left Hand of Darkness. Uh, they're doing a 50th anniversary edition. And for some reason, they, they thought it would be a good idea to get me to write like a, a companion piece to it. And so I was rereading The Left Hand of Darkness and there's just, it's so dense with ideas and beautiful moments and just like incredible imagery and just so much stuff going on in that book that every time I read it, it's a new book. It's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think that the stuff about Sophie's emotional state, it kind of comes back to, like I was talking about how the thing of like the sky never changes, the sun never sets, the sun never rises it made me think about the passage of time and that made me think about the past and thinking about the past made me think about trauma i think that a huge theme in this book is trauma both personal and historical mm. and so part of what ended up being kind of interesting about sophie is that she's dealing with a lot of personal trauma due to the stuff that happens to her at the start of the book she goes through a lot over the course of the book and i wanted to kind of honor that but also she's kind of coming to terms with the fact that there's historical trauma that she kind of is affected by, but didn't really understand. That was the thing that I wanted to handle as, as carefully as I could. And I spent a lot of time talking to people about trauma and about how they deal with trauma and how they process trauma, because I wanted that to feel lived in and as real as, you know, all the other stuff that I, I tried to make feel grounded. Uh, but I feel like that is a theme. So I think now's a good time to have you read a passage from The City in the Middle of the Night. I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning. And I mentioned that Sophie gets banished into the night because she takes the blame for her friend Bianca's uh, reckless behavior. And uh, then she 
almost dies, but she actually encounters the the native life form that lives in the night, who the human settlers call crocodiles, even though they don't actually look anything like a crocodile. It's kind of one of the weird things in this book is that we use Earth terms for things that are not at all like the things on Earth. And so she encounters this alien life form. And this is kind of the part of the book where instead of dying, she learns how to communicate with it or with, with her. Back in grammar school, they taught us all about the crocodiles and what to do if you ever meet one. Don't try to run because you're on their territory and they can ensnare you in one of those long tentacles before your first stride. Plus, they can clear vast distances with their powerful hind legs, each one the size of an adult human, and their strong forelegs can climb any surface and dig through almost any barrier. You might be able to hide because we don't know how they sense their prey. Since they can't rely on vision or hearing in this pitch dark wind, they may use scent or maybe they can detect motion somehow. Nobody's ever hidden from one, but you might be the first. The only viable strategy though is to attack. Crocodiles do have a few weaknesses that a human can exploit. They have soft spots on the underbelly where the carapace doesn't extend all the way around. I know where all their major organs are because I watched Frank the Butcher carve one up for some fancy banquet after a few hunters had gotten lucky, returning from the night in one piece and with fresh game. But their main weakness, the easiest one to reach, is the exact center of the pincer that's right in front of me, sticking out of the creature's head. The impenetrable shell contains two knife-sharp claws, but at their midpoint, is a forest of a hundred wriggling tongues, each one about the size of your little finger. If you manage to strike at the pincer's heart and hit one of those slimy appendages, then you might kill it in one stroke. This pincer is so close, I can feel one of its edges scrape my throat. It could slice my head off before I could react. I try to summon all my courage, brace my feet on the slippery ground to deliver one great blow to the warm spot at the pincer's fulcrum. I can do this. I'm strong enough. I raise both fists. Then I stop. Because I feel warm breath coming from below the pincer where the creature's mouth is, and that part of me that always stands back and pulls everything apart instead of just blurting out words is asking, Why is a crocodile's mouth so far away from those tongues anyway? She can't possibly use them to taste anything or make any sounds. Why are they right at the center of this armored scissor, vulnerable yet shielded? I lower my fists. Instead, I push my unprotected face forward, almost losing my balance in the dark. The pincer is all around my head and neck now, but it doesn't close and kill me. Instead... This crocodile lets me press forward and push my frost-burnt nose into the moist heat of her slimy, warm grubs. They brush my face, and my head floods with urgent smells and disorienting sounds, a beautiful ugliness, too much to handle, like I'm out of my head drunk with no up or down, nothing but a whirl of sensory overlord. I almost keel over, but somehow I stay upright until I'm somewhere else. I'm way out in the middle of the night now, surrounded by huge sheets of ice on all sides, a mountain of ice and snow sidles past along the horizon. We're thousands of kilometers farther out than any human has gone in 25 generations since we lost all our scout ships and all-terrain vehicles. Somehow I can see in the dark now, except I realize I'm not seeing at all. I'm using alien senses, and my mind is turning them into sight and sound. 
I tear through the landscape so fast the wind can't keep up. A sudden storm could rip me apart. The tundra could swallow me, but I don't even care. My back legs push against the ground and the ice surrenders, while my smaller front legs rip into the slick surface, propelling me even faster and keeping my balance. I'm not running. This is something much better. I have never felt so much power in my body and so many sensations flood into the ends of my two great tentacles as they taste the wind around me. I want to laugh. And then I turn and see that four other crocodiles are running alongside me, grasping some spiky devices in their tentacles and pulling a sled full of some kind of precious metal. I feel a surge of pride, safety, happiness that they're with me and we're going home. Then we reach it. A huge structure in the shape of a rose with all of its petals spread. A circle surrounded by elaborate crisscrossing arch shapes. Only the very top pokes above the surface and the rest extends far below the ice, but still, its beauty almost stops my heart. A glimmering city, many times larger than Chiasfand, that no human eyes have ever seen. Mm. And that's our first glimpse of the city at the middle of the night, which is where the book gets its title. This is Story Behind the Story on KSQD 90.7 FM. Stay tuned for more of my conversation with San Francisco author Charlie Jane Anders after a short break. Welcome to Cats on Dogs, insights for both ends of the leash. I'm professional dog trainer Lori Katz, here with Watsonville's very own radio retriever Chopa. We'll take your calls, answer your dog training questions, and bring you interviews with local experts and international dog training treasures. You'll also have the opportunity to send out love songs and get well soon messages to your favorite canines and other animal companions as well. Listen to Cats on Dogs the first Saturday of each month, 1 to 2 p.m. on 90.7 KSQD. You're listening to Story Behind the Story on KSQD 90.7 FM, community radio for Santa Cruz County. I'm Clara Shirley Appel, and I'm talking to science fiction and fantasy author Charlie Jane Anders about her latest novel, The City in the Middle of the Night. What do you think it is about Sophie that lets her see these creatures for who they really are? I think it's that she's not like, she's not a typical hero of like a science fiction or fantasy book. And that was a thing that I really, like part of the many ways that I was trying to like break out of my usual pattern in this book was to make Sophie not your typical sci-fi or fantasy hero. She's not someone who acts first and then thinks later. She's not someone who talks a lot. She's not an extrovert. She's a total introvert. She's very shy, in fact. She is somebody who kind of hangs back and thinks about stuff and is, you know, constantly kind of second-guessing herself and questioning and wondering. And I think that's the thing that actually makes her open to communicating with this very different life form because she's not just like blundering into the situation. She actually stops and thinks, and that's what saves her life. And, you know, in that moment, she is just willing to take this incredible risk and kind of make herself really vulnerable. That might've been a terrible decision that might've gotten her killed, but it actually pays off because she figures out that something about what she's been told about these creatures doesn't make sense. I think it's just that she's, she's different. That's part of what I love about Sophie is that she's, she's not like other heroes that I've written. And she's also kind of just a different kind of character. I I think it's so fascinating. She, is simultaneously someone who, um, especially early in the book, 
you can just tell she like desperately wants to fit in, but she's also like almost pathologically incapable of conforming. Yeah. And I liked that about her. And I thought that was interesting. And the book originally starts with the thing where she's grabbed by the police and dragged away. Mm. And that's like how the book starts. And it's like, it was an exciting start to the book, but it didn't really tell you who Sophie is Mm. and what she's about and her relationship with Bianca and why she's willing to to take the blame for Bianca's theft and all this other stuff. And so I kind of made the decision to kind of start a little slower and hope that people are willing to bear with me for like 20 pages before we get to the action, because I wanted to kind of establish her as a character. So there's a concept that you introduce later in the novel, um, Anchor Bunter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Without giving too much away, tell us about that. You know, they travel from the city that Sophie lives in Uh, which is the city where everybody sleeps at the same time and everybody kind of works at the same time and everybody has like very clearly defined roles and it's kind of conformist and very regimented. And then she travels to the other city where there's kind of no rules and people do whatever they want, but it's also very dangerous and kind of on the edge of falling apart and ruled by these families that are kind of gangsters almost. So I was trying to come up with like, what I thought was a believable culture for these two cities, uh, bearing in mind that they'd been on this planet for hundreds of years, Earth time, and you know they had started out with cultures from Earth that were not the cultures that we're used to either. So I just tried to come up with a bunch of cultural concepts in both cities that made sense to me and that were interesting. And Anchor Banter was something that kind of took on a life of its own and got really fun. And I, I like the idea of like, Sophie has to go to this other city and learn a new language and Part of learning the new language is inevitably that there are concepts in that language that don't translate into anything in in your original language. You know, in English, we have like, there are terms from German, like schadenfreude or whatever, or terms from Japanese that don't necessarily have an exact translation in English. And it's more like it's a cultural concept that doesn't, you know, doesn't have an exact analog. And obviously, this is a, a thing that Le Guin plays with a lot, like in her books, in the, in the Left Hand of Darkness, there's the concept of Shifgrathor, which is, you know, something that Genli I struggles to understand throughout the course of the book. And he that's part of Genli's journey in the book is learning to understand this concept in this alien culture. I wanted to have something like that that was kind of an interesting concept in Aryalan language that Sophie struggles to understand what it means. It kind of, you know, it became an interesting misdirect because... You think it's about one thing, and then over the course of the book, you kind of realize that it's actually about something completely different. It actually becomes important to the relationship between Sophie and the other POV character in the book, who's this smuggler named Mouth, who Mouth is kind of, in a lot of ways, the opposite of Sophie. Mouth is a huge extrovert, totally a woman of action who is happy to wade in and like kick butt and take names and worry about the consequences later and like has murdered a million people over the course of her life as a smuggler and is kind of a badass but has all this stuff from her past that she hasn't really dealt with properly and so this concept of anchor banter without kind of giving away all of it it ends up becoming something that helps you to understand the relationship that sophie develops with mouth I talk about like, I like it when I'm writing a book and I surprise myself or the characters surprise Mm. me or the story surprises me. This was something that kind of surprised me in a way. It just sort of, I wasn't entirely sure where I was going with that. And then I was like, oh, but what if, and it just kind of ended up being a thing that paid off in a way that I thought was really 
that made me really happy in terms of actually having a meaning for this relationship that ends up being central to the book in the end. Speaking of uh, things that are really satisfying, what were your favorite parts of The City in the Middle of the Night to write? I love a lot of the stuff with Mouth and her friend, Alyssa. You know, Mouth, she's a smuggler. Uh, She travels with this group of smugglers called the Resourceful Couriers. And Alyssa is kind of Mouth's partner. And they sleep together. They, They literally sleep together. They share a sleeping bag or whatever, because you have to do that for various reasons. They have a relationship that's sort of ambiguously romantic like they're kind of married but they're kind of best friends and romantic friendship they have a romantic friendship and it's pretty clear that they're kind of in love with each other but they're kind of also just best friends the moments of them kind of hanging out and being these two kind of cynical smugglers were some of my favorite parts of the book to write and just like they're kind of joking back and forth and they're kind of they i think that that stuff like the the stuff with mouth and Alyssa, added some lightness to a book that was in some places a little bit dark and and scary. Uh, It kind of adds some lightness to it. And then over time, as Mouth confronts her own darkness, that gets more complicated. But I think that there's always this nice kind of crackle of like joking around and cynical kind of bantering between Mouth and Alyssa that I really, I I really enjoyed writing that. And that's the kind of stuff that I always enjoy writing is like people who kind of have that relationship where they can joke around and they kind of understand each other. What do you want readers to feel when they read this book? I feel like if you start out with a feeling that you want the reader to have, then it can get a little bit manipulative. But there are feelings that I get from this book, like when I reread it or when I was revising it. I feel like by the end of the book, I have a really hopeful feeling. Like, I feel like it's a very hopeful book. It's a book that confronts a lot of like heavy stuff, but it's also about coming together and finding a path forward and finding hope. And there are parts of the book that just talking about favorite parts. There's a part towards the end of the book, which I won't spoil because it's a huge spoiler, but where mouth and Sophie really like bond in a way that they haven't bonded before. They do this by kind of having this kind of communion that they've never done before. That's part of the, that's the part of the book where I just kind of like when I reread it, I guess I feel overwhelmed with, hope, but also just like this intense feeling of, I don't know, just tenderness, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I hope that people come away from the book with a sense that all of the stuff that we're grappling with in real life, we can find a way to deal with, kind of. Part of what I like about science fiction is that you can confront a lot of heavy stuff that if you wrote about it in a realistic novel, in a or quote unquote realistic, if you wrote about it in a non- fantasy non-science fiction novel set in 2020 or 2019 or whatever, it would be, it might be really heavy and it might be like hard for people to deal with, but you can put it on another planet and you can kind of show a way forward through, you know, these kind of thought experiments and you can kind of show how actually we can, we can cope with this. We can do this. We can grapple with this. And a lot of the themes of the book, it's not a book that particularly comments in a kind of one-to-one kind of on the nose way about current politics in America or whatever, but there's stuff that kind of relates back to political issues. And I think that the book hopefully leaves you feeling like, you know, we can change, we can do this, we can come together, we can find a different way. You mentioned that writing this book sort of forced you to, to think about and maybe confront some traumas in your past. 
was writing it healing? That's a good question. I mean, I think writing is always kind of a little bit cathartic. You know, part of the process is that you create scary or intense or upsetting situations, and then you hopefully show the characters surviving them and escaping them and getting through them. And that can be really cathartic. It definitely helped me to think about stuff in a different way, like exploring that theme of the past and especially the connection between personal trauma and kind of like collective historical trauma. That was a a helpful kind of therapeutic-ish thing to think about during the time I was working on it. And I started working on it in kind of late 2013 and early 2014. And so it was a very different time than, than now, but it was still, it was a good thing to think about. And it kind of, it was helpful in some ways. Like, I think it provided me with some, some metaphors that I hadn't had before, I guess. What's next for you? Well, so I have this uh, young adult trilogy that I sold to the same publisher, Tor. I handed in the first book, and now I'm busy revising that while also working on the second book and trying to figure out what the third book is. Like I have a plan, but it keeps changing. And, you know, I've never, I've basically never written young adult fiction before, even though some people feel like the first third of All the Birds in the Sky has some YA feel to it. But it's it's a new, it's a it's a different kind of writing. It's all, It's kind of a different genre for me. That's another challenge, I guess. And I'm having a lot of fun writing kind of, it's more fun and kind of action-packed and fantastical. It's a very different kind of book than either All the Birds in the Sky or The City in the Middle of the Night, which I think is is good because, again, you want to keep challenging yourself and you want to keep doing something different. And it's it's a space opera. So it's like spaceships and aliens and ray guns and like it's that kind of stuff. It's sort of Guardians of the Galaxy, Star Wars kind of stuff. Charlie Jane, thank you so much for joining me today. Yay, thanks for having me. This was super fun. Thank you. Charlie Jane Anders is the author of All the Birds in the Sky, published in 2016, and The City in the Middle of the Night, which comes out this February, plus a boatload of other things. You can find her books at your local bookstore, online, and anywhere else books are sold. Next time, I'll talk to dramatist Chaco Juarez about documentary theater and his new play on the history of East Salinas. I hope you'll join us. 